You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Ganesh, welcome back to the podcast, mate. It's always a pleasure. Oh, and yeah, thanks for being back. Today, we're going to talk about a really popular ETF that um, you and the team at ETF Securities have just launched which is the semi-ETF, as most people know it. Um, investing in and around uh, the semiconductor industry. It's a really interesting one, particularly coming out of the COVID pandemic. We see supply chain bottlenecks, um, lots of delays on people's favorite products, whether it's an iPad or whether it's something for a car or anything basically electrical. People are thinking, when am I going to get this thing delivered? Most of us blame Australia Post, but sometimes it's other things that are impacting the supply chain way back, kind of at the, I guess, the fulcrum of the internet uh, technologies and just technologies, generally speaking. And that is kind of in this microchip and semiconductor space. So let's just, let's just kick things off. Um, tell us a little bit about semiconductors, what they are, the industry, and basically like what are the key kind of dynamics in this industry? Yeah, so Owen, I think um, to, to start at the beginning and, you know, you, you framed it correctly, so semiconductors really lie at the heart of all electronics. So they're the brains of modern electronics, you know, anything that we use, the fact that your laptop, your phone, um, and more and more as we develop technology, you know, from our vacuum cleaners, the smart TVs, um, even cars, as, as you said, are becoming more and more reliant upon semiconductor chips. So in reality, you know, the way you can see it is they are the bricks and mortar of the future. Um, it's what you may think about in terms of what oil was to, to the world or to from an industrial perspective as well. Because without semiconductor chips and without, you know, constant development, um, you're not going to see advancements in technology and you're going to see 
potential slowdowns in production of many goods. Um, and we've already seen that because currently there is that chip shortage. Um, you mentioned because of COVID-19. I think that's partly the reason. Um, there wasn't just enough supply at the time and there was this big onset of demand as people started working from home, onset of tech, you know, driving, you know, personal electronics, um, but also from a, a car perspective, um, we're seeing that the use of semiconductor chips within cars is actually going to increase. I think it's sitting about sort of that 20, 25% at the moment, and it's expected to, to reach upwards of nearly, you know, 40 to 50% um, within a sort of a decade or so. And that's, that's really important to understand that, especially as we move towards more electric vehicles, semiconductors are going to be more, much more required within the automobile space. Um, so, that's where sort of why we need semiconductors and they're not an old industry either i think people sometimes forget everyone thinks oh semiconductors i'm only hearing about it now i think we're only hearing about it now is because semiconductors have been around for about 30 40 years you know from when we think about the first computer um, there was chips there um, but the idea of the semiconductor chip and the reason why it's become more important is as they become smaller as the processing speeds or the ability for more memory can be stored on semiconductor chips. It has allowed then technology to advance. So the fact that you have iPhones that are constantly now being updated and being developed is partly a result of advancements in semiconductor chip manufacturing. So they sort of work hand in hand. Um, and as I said, because of our now reliance on electronics, they're becoming more important and more relevant to us um, at the moment. Um, and I think it's just in terms of the industry that that's important to understand, you know, how does this all work and, and who's involved? So within the semiconductor industry, it is very much dominated by a few players. And in some companies, they actually hold monopolies on the spaces that they operate in. So if you break it down, you've got basically four different types of, of the industry. You've got the semiconductor designers, so these are what's called fabulous companies or, you know, companies like NVIDIA and AMD, two very well-known companies at the moment. And they essentially, they don't ever make microchips themselves, but they design them. Um, so they design the types of microchips. You've got the semiconductor factories and everyone knows now who TSMC is or Taiwan Semiconductors Company. Um, now TSMC, they operate foundries and the foundries are the manufacturing plants that create and manufacture semiconductor chips. So they don't design the chips, they take those designs from companies like AMD, Nvidia, and they essentially manufacture them. And to manufacture these chips or to build those foundries, it costs billions of dollars and it takes many years. And that's the reason why, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about the chip shortage. It's one of the reasons why there's a chip shortage that currently exists. You've then got integrated device manufacturers. And essentially these, these are companies that do both the design and the manufacturing. So they're companies like Intel. So that's a really good example. It does both designing of the microchips and builds them too. Again, some of these companies, they generally don't do both because of the costs involved in terms of trying to do both. And then finally, you've got the equipment makers. And the equipment makers are essentially, they make machines that are used in the factories to build the semiconductor chips. So companies like ASML or LAM Research. Now these two companies are integral in the industry of semiconductors, but not many people know who they are. 
So for example, in a factory, the air has to be so pure that you can't breathe it. So the idea of, you know, dust particles can ruin chips in the manufacturing process, um, or they're working on such precise measurements. And that's where companies like ASML with their lithography machine or LAM research with their etching equipment, that's where they come into it. So without some of those, and again, some of these companies like ASML, they are the only ones that produce the lithography machine that is widely used. And the cost is something like about 140 million US dollars per machine. So it's just, it's, it's unbelievable. You know, it's, it's some of the, the market um, sort of share that, that some of these companies have. Yeah, I think we talked about ASML recently, you and I. Um, just to put it in context for people, sometimes the, uh, well, sometimes the, the kind of the leading edge of uh, microchips and semiconductors is around three nanometers. So that is, but you wouldn't even see it. Um, and that's why if dust gets into these environments, into these clean rooms, um, the dust can be like a major, it can actually be bigger than the actual semiconductor, the transistor itself. So it's actually a really interesting scale when you put it like that and on the other end we go from tiny to huge it can cost tens of billions of dollars to get one of these uh, foundries up and running and even if you do get it up and running which china is finding out at the moment um, you could be five years behind by the time it's built and so you know and, and then there's no guarantee that you're going to be at the leading edge of that and i think that's that's a really interesting thing too because basically it's like a, economies of scale so these incumbents are so big um, that they basically kind of edged out a market for themselves. And I think it was the Trump administration, if I'm not mistaken, Kanish, that basically tried to squeeze China a bit with TSMC. And now China's trying to build their own uh, foundries to a similar standard. But again, it's going to be very difficult. and It's going to take many years before we get to that. Yeah, that's true. So um, it wasn't only just TSMC, but they actually tried they did ban actually um they requested the netherlands to ban the exports of asml's lithography machine to to china and so the new york times and to your point you, you mentioned about five years in terms of development for foundries but the lithography machine that technology because it's pretty much only held by asml the new york times did some studies and said it would take china 10 years to maybe or more to create a company or the technology that can do what ASML does. So by the time they do that, we're also going under the assumption that ASML is constantly redeveloping and you know innovating on its own technology. So by the time it gets there, what's going to happen with that technology is already outdated. So you know that is a, a very big you know roadblock to a lot of new starters coming up in terms of this industry, which is why you know as I mentioned, it's very much dominated by the companies that are from market size that are the largest, but also that are constantly have the largest capital, you know, investments as well from a budget perspective. So those companies that are constantly investing in the R&D side are the companies that are leading in the semiconductor space. And we actually have seen, when you look at R&D spent across industries, biotech from a, you know, an industry perspective is normally seen as the highest in terms of research and development costs. But semiconductors and the related semiconductor industries are actually combined potentially higher than what the biotech R&D spend is from an industry perspective. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating because obviously they've got to invest so much back into this and it's such an important part of our entire kind of society these days, you know, 
this conversation would not be possible without some of these innovations. And to your point earlier on, I was reflecting when you said that this industry has been around a long time. This is going to be a bit nerdy of me, but I remember the old Terminator movie. I think it involved um, someone in a microchip factory and they were trying to stop um, trying to stop basically the end of the world in um, in the show. And it was in a to try and stop someone who had the kind of the keys to the city in microchip land. So that was fascinating. Um, so we've already talked about a couple of companies inside the semi-ETF um, and inside the thematic. Are you able to just draw on a couple of them that you think are really interesting and people should know about? Yeah, definitely. So uh, I think a, a really important one is, say, you know, LAM research. Um, now, LAM research at the moment, it produces the etching equipment that a foundry actually uses um, to produce semiconductor chips. So, you know, LAM actually, it's funny, LAM actually says that they are one of the companies that no one actually knows who they are, but they're one of the most important because they've got their fingerprint on pretty much every single electronic in the world. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting company from that perspective, but it's a company, again, not many people would know of it. It's very specific in the equipment that it produces, but it's a company there that really is crucial within the industry at the moment. So uh, I think that, that that's a very interesting one. Um, another one that I mentioned is ASML. Um, and you and I have spoken about ASML before, so I won't go into too, you know, I won't spend too long on it, but, you know, essentially it's got a monopoly on the lithography machines, which is the, um, essentially it's the machine that puts transistors onto microchips. And, you know, for a machine that costs, you know, 130, 140 million US dollars, that is a company that essentially is operating in a space that it no one else can produce that technology. So again, it's it's one of the companies that now has become well known, but it's been producing this machine for, for many years and and has that sort of from their perspective um, is is a leader in that space. Um, people know about Taiwan semiconductors. Um, AMD is sort of an American. You know, we talk about that sort of chip designers, um, sort of fabulous. Um, and and name is an interesting one because many years ago you would have said, well, it's nearly bankrupt, you know, about five years ago, but it's really done a big turnaround. It produces now some of the best central processing units of so the CPU. So what a lot of our computers, um, what a lot of, you know, you can, when you consider, you know, iPhones and things like that, or, you know, some of the smartphones that they use some AMD chips. Um, now, what's actually really interesting is that it's also the preferred choice for a lot of data centers. So if we're talking about cloud computing, so, you know, we talk about thematics and semiconductors potentially is at the heart of a lot of other megatrends. So cloud computing, you know, that's how we're going to be sort of using and storing data. Well, AMD is at the heart of that. So, you know, Google Cloud has recently, you know, talked to AMD about producing processes for its servers. Um, so they're just a few of the companies that, that, that are really interesting that, that are working in this particular space um, in terms of where we see the, the industry going. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, it's what's, what's interesting about the, the ETF, the semi-ETF, is that um, you can have a company like ASML, which is from the Netherlands, and you can combine that with a company like Taiwan Semiconductor, and you can have US companies in there as well. So you can kind of get that basket approach. And that's why we love ETFs, right? In general. So um, if you're looking for this thematic, uh, you kind of get them all in a basket, which is really interesting. Um, 
Tell us a little bit more about the ETF then and how it, I guess, well, not as much the ETF, but also the index. What index does it follow? How are companies screened? I know that there's a cap on weightings um, and how is the portfolio constructed? So really just bringing together the semi-ETF. We know what the companies are. We know what the thematic is. How does it select them and put them together? Yeah, definitely. So the, the ETF um, and the code is semi-SEMI. It tracks the sole active global semiconductor 30 index. So essentially it's the 30 companies from developed markets plus Taiwan and Korea across the semiconductor value chain. Now, to get to that 30 stocks, what the index does is it first looks at the industry classification. So firstly, the company needs to be classified as being a semiconductor company, according to FactSet, or according to Arbix, which is another classification um, uh, company, uh, they have to be classified as a semiconductor equipment and services or a semiconductor manufacturing company. So a company like, um, for example, Apple, we get asked sometimes this question, well, what if Apple gets into semiconductor chip manufacturing? Or an even bigger one is Samsung. Now, we know Samsung is doing a lot within the semiconductor space, especially in terms of R&D and also chip manufacturing. We don't have semiconductor, uh, sorry, Samsung in the index at the moment. And the reason being is, as per the industry classification, Samsung is a multinational corporation doing a lot of things. Semiconductors is one of those things. It is, yes, you know, a 30% or I think at this point in a roughly around 30% revenue contributor for Samsung, um, semiconductors are, but it's not the only revenue um, contributor. You know, they do personal electronics, they do a whole range of different things. So if at some point semiconductor manufacturing became a bigger part of Samsung's revenue stream, then they could be classified as a semiconductor company because as according to this industry classification, then yes, they could feature in. But at this stage, we're looking for more pure plays so that there is not going to be that, you know, influence that other parts of that business can impact on that, that fund. So um, on that company's performance. So, you know, first they have to be classified as a semiconductor company. Another really important one is the market cap. Because we're looking at an established industry, the minimums to feature in this index are quite high. So the minimum market cap for new entrants is US $1 billion. And they have to be traded over a, a period of six months for by at least $1 million a day. So the average daily value traded has to be US $1 million. So again, it's very high liquidity. And again, when we're talking about developed markets, Taiwan and Korea, we don't want to be investing in very, very small companies that are you know, hard for the ETF to buy into. Um, and finally, you mentioned that the limit on the company. So it chooses a 30 based on the largest, so based on the market size, the market cap, but it caps at 10%. And again, the reason for that is companies like ASML, Taiwan Semiconductors, you know, Intel, they're very large companies. And they potentially could have featured a lot larger than their current um, positions in the portfolio at the time of the rebound. So just to make sure that there is some distribution across the 30 stocks, there is that cap of 10%. Yeah, because I did notice that because, um, yeah, there are, obviously there are a few companies that accrue a lot of the value in this industry because it's such a tightly held industry. A lot of that surplus in economic terms goes to select companies. And as a result, they're massive companies, right? So um, inside the ETF, it's interesting that you have the cap there and it's probably appropriate. 
Um, how about then, okay, how about then in terms of just like the ETF generally speaking? So I noticed that it's got a, a 0.57 um, basis point, or, sorry, uh, percent management fee. It's the annual uh, management fees, uh, 57 basis points, uh, distribution semi-annually. Um, it invests overseas, but it's domiciled here in Australia. So there's no WA Ben form. Um, are there any other metrics that you can throw out across the portfolio, generally speaking, like what are people getting and what are investors getting when they, they buy into the portfolio as a whole? Uh, I know like some things that people like, like PE ratios, dividends. Is this a, is this a type of ETF that would pay dividends? Look, it can pay a dividend. Um, you know, I'm not going to say it, it can't pay a dividend. So the actual ETF does have a semi-annual distribution. So any stocks that pay a dividend within the periods of the six months, so December and June, this ETF will pay out those dividends, but the actual distributions or dividends, this is a growth play. You know, a lot of these companies, when you consider them, they're not paying out dividends. They're actually reinvesting their capital for that R&D spend. So I wouldn't be, as an investor, looking at this as an income play. This is a growth play for investors to consider. You know, if you looked at performance over one year, this is to the end of September, um, 2021. The one year figures on the index, because obviously the ETF has only been running for since, you know, late August. Um, the index has had performance of roughly around 46.2% over one year. Annualized performance over five years has been 31.8%. So, you know, that's sort of where it sits at the moment. It is very much a growth play for investors to capture that thematic on, um, on semiconductors. Mm. Mm. And um, important note there, you can uh, check out all of the kind of the figures and the performance metrics and also performance warning on the uh, ETF securities website. There's also a, a great white paper, which I read before we started recording, um, which introduces investors to kind of the industry and all the different players and what can be expected from the industry over time. So there'll be a link in the show notes to that. Um, mate, one more question before we kind of wrap up. And it's just, so you said it's a growth play. How would, how are people, how are investors coming to you and saying, this is how I intend to use this ETF in my portfolio? Like, what are you seeing in terms of allocations? Is this like a tactical play or is it something that people tend to put in the core, even though it's only 30 positions? Like, how, how do you see that playing it? So, so the way we are seeing it being played is as a satellite. So if you think about how can you use um, an ETF, it's either as a core position, as you mentioned, it's a foundation building block. It has a larger allocation within your portfolio. It can be a satellite, which again is a long-term view on the thematic, but it has a smaller allocation within your portfolio. And then tactical is more, it is very much short to medium term. Again, it sits primarily outside of your, your core and satellites, it, it's still relatively small as a percentage, but it's a shorter term play. The way we are seeing investors use this, this semiconductor ETF and most thematic ETFs, to be honest, is as a satellite. So it's a complement to other building blocks that they may have in their portfolio. Um, what's really important to, to recognize is this isn't an industry, you know, we've talked about being an old industry, but as a mega trend, it's something that's only going to continue to grow. You know, current wait times for chips are sitting at around 21 weeks, I believe. Um, you know, and it's not looking at the moment that that will come down anytime soon. You know, even if they do come up with enough supply to you know, service the current demand, 
well, you're going to then see increased demand on, say, electric vehicles um, over the next 10, 20 years. That's only going to increase demand on chips. Um, you're going to see greater use of personal electronics or greater advancements in electronics, not only in personal, but also industrial. So the way in which we use electronics, whether it's in agriculture, with you know, the agri you know, ag tech and you know, the, the fact that you have autonomous tractors to autonomous vacuum cleaners and smart vacuum cleaners in the home or your Google home or, and things like that. All of these require semiconductors. So it's really gonna be relevant and use, you know, necessary um, going out. So it's, it's a long-term mega trend that people need to consider. And that's why I say, you know, looking at it as a satellite. Yeah, it's one of those ones. And I don't think you'd get too much overlap with existing positions. Of course, like companies like uh, TSMC or, you know, Intel or any types of businesses like that would appear in other ETFs that you may hold, but not to this extent. So this is kind of like a targeted uh, thematic exposure, which is really interesting too. So that's something that I always say is just consider like, how does it sit alongside what you've already got yes. um, in terms of that overlap? And that's often a question we get too, but it's very targeted at particular industries. And as we talked about, like getting exposure to something like ASML, for example, is not easy. Like not many people have direct exposure to a business like that. Um, no. So yeah. So interesting, fantastic. So okay. So just to wrap up, where can people find out more about the the semi ETF if they want to uh, keep learning and and discover more? Yeah. So the best place to to look for more information is our website. So that's etfsecurities.com.au. You can find all the information on on the semiconductor ETF there under the products tab. But you can also find information on, on some of the other um, funds that we have. Or you know. Outside of that, you know, speak to your, you know, financial planner, stockbroker, or even, you know, go onto your, your brokerage platform. If you are using that, there is information there as well on, on the fund. Mm. Yeah. And we'll put links in the show notes to the, to the white paper that you guys have produced to go along with this. So Kanish Chug from ETF Securities, always a pleasure, mate. Thanks for joining me. No, thanks for having me on. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast, where our mission is to improve the financial futures of all Australians. If you'd like to learn more, create a free account at rusk.com.au forward slash account to download free episode workbooks, bonus resources, and take our amazing free personal finance courses. You can also join our online community by following the link in the description. If you enjoyed the show, what we'd love is for you to leave us a snappy review on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Rask Australia. Kate and I are also on both of those channels. Finally, if you have any feedback, suggestions for episodes or guests to come on the show, or you just have a question for us, shoot us an email at podcast at rask.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no-obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, 
I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.